Hi everyone, just a quick note before we begin. This episode contains discussion of suicide and drug abuse. Please listen with care. You're listening to WALT. Homemade Radio. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. For the last couple of episodes, you've been hearing Craig Mangum tell the story of his journey away from Mormonism and towards a deeper connection with his gay Mormon uncles, who Craig never really got to know when they were alive. In our last episode, you heard the story of Uncle Brent, the brother of Craig's grandma Orva. And this week, you're going to meet Orva's son, Larry. As you've been hearing... Craig's path to telling these stories has been a long and winding one. But one of the early bends in the road happened back when Craig watched a video recording of Larry's funeral. Larry died of a drug overdose and kept his sexuality hidden for most of his life. At the funeral, a heavily edited, church-friendly version of Larry's life story was presented, a version Craig knew was a lie. As he watched, Craig felt a pang of resonance with Larry, and he vowed to never let his own truth be erased. And as the years went on, and Craig finally left the church, Larry's story continued to reverberate in Craig's life. There was something very um, discombobulating, like just like overwhelming about that sense of resonance through such a self-destructive behavior. That's a recording from one of Craig and I's first story meetings about this project. Craig told me that a few years after he renounced Mormonism, he found himself waging his own battle with drugs and alcohol. And one night, in the haze of an hours-long bender, Craig had a revelation. And I was going to write for five hours, and I open up my Google Docs, and I open up my last doc, And written in front of me was what I had sat down to write. I had written it the night before and I'd forgotten it. And I just had this minute where I was like, I'm going to be just like Larry. This will consume me and I will be just like him. I need help. Wait, so what was the piece that you were planning to write that you realized you'd already written? Do you remember what the content of it was? It was something about Larry. Like, I don't, I don't remember what it was like a, you know, you're not very, shocker, not a great writer when you're <laughs> fucked up. Like, oh, it's, sure, it's sure. not good. See, but, so I, but yeah. that's interesting to me that, I mean, there is a way in that moment where Larry's story and yeah. telling Larry's story saved, saved your life. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm glad yeah. you said it because I, I was like, am I going too far with this? But yeah, I mean, no, you're not. That's truly incredible. And, and to have that, and to have it happen in the context of when you were also abusing substance. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that, that is, that, yeah. I mean, that's like a religious story. That's like a, um, yeah. <laughs> believe me, the, me, me and the universe, we love some like parallel symbolism. It's like a Steinbeck up in here. Like it's just, you know, there are A's and C's occurring through the generation. In the years since that night, Craig's done a lot of work to recalibrate his relationship with drugs and alcohol. And after that story meeting, 
Craig and I talked a lot about whether or not he felt safe enough to plunge into the depths of Larry's history. But Craig has always insisted that telling Larry's story matters. And not because it saved Craig. It matters because Larry mattered. I don't take this lightly, and it's not easy. We are sitting here poking truly like what are like the you know the the columns upon which my sense of identity and self are built and it's a lot of pain and trauma and i don't go recklessly destabilizing myself but a part of me has always known the reckoning would come with this story from waltfm and prx you're listening to family ghosts after the break the finale of Pioneer Stock. We'll be right back. When I went to live with my grandma Orva in Utah, she showed me a picture of Larry in high school. Whenever I see a picture of my uncle Larry as a teenager, I can't help but laugh. Everyone's teenage years are awkward, but his seem to be in a class above the rest. His mouth is filled with braces, which probably wasn't the only thing he was hoping to wrangle straight at the time. His face is covered with acne, which is definitely genetic, but later generations have avoided the fate through multiple rounds of Accutane. Larry didn't have that option back then. Atop it all sits a burning bush of Larry's bright red hair. I really enjoyed Larry a baby when he was little and, and growing up and, and I did I really did enjoy him I enjoyed all my cats but I really did enjoy Larry he was he was fun for me I don't really remember him having a lot of friends he was he was pretty much longer the whispers started when Larry was young and unfortunately for him They started in the Mormon congregation he attended every Sunday. Utah's version of Mormonism is a unique beast. Congregations, called wards, are based on geography. So in Mormon-saturated places like the suburbs of Salt Lake City, the people sitting in the pew next to you are not only your fellow congregants, but also your neighbors. It can take gossip to a whole new level. In Larry's ward, tucked into a wealthy cove just south of downtown Salt Lake City, was no exception. Their father started rumors in the war that that Larry was gay. The world seems to have a particular type of cruelty reserved for young boys who are sensitive and quiet. And it's a cruelty that all the mothers in my family tree seem to be keenly aware of, having witnessed it play out in the generation before them. I don't think these women worry so much about their sons being gay as they worry that being gay will mean our lives will be hard, full of hurt and pain from the misunderstandings of others. And so, my grandma Orva protected Larry, ferociously. I took Larry and we went over to the father. I recreate the scene in my mind. I see Orva grab Larry by the hand and march two houses down the street pounding a heavy door until the man who started the rumors answers. And I confronted the father with his children sitting there, his two boys. I see her there with her body tense, ready for a fight. I'm impressed at her strength, 
unwilling to be silent as her son was bullied by a grown man, all in a culture not exactly noted for women speaking up against men. I imagine Larry sinking into the sofa, attempting to disappear as he watched his mother spar with the man. If the topic at hand wasn't humiliating enough, having his mother do the fighting for him had to be demoralizing. Everyone at school and church had already labeled him a pansy. Surely having your mom fight your battles made it at least a little bit true. And we talked for quite a while, and he would not deny that he had said that. He would not apologize to Larry or to me for saying that. And I probably spent over an hour talking with him and, and asking him why he felt justified in doing what he did. And he never did tell me why he was justified or felt justified. He just said, yes. And he was. And as the man insinuated, Orva better be ready for it. Because the world was tough for people like Larry. But of course, she already knew this. The world is tough for everyone. Orva grew up on the same truck farm as Uncle Brent, just outside Blackfoot, Idaho. She and her siblings made extra money picking beets in the fall, their school schedules dictated entirely by how many hands were needed to help with the harvest. On her 14th birthday, a boy from a farm nearby picked her up in his car to visit a few friends closer to town. He gave her the keys to drive the car back home later that night. No one had licenses back then, and farm life meant everyone drove underage. Speeding down the pitch-black roads flanked by fields filled with tall stalks of corn, she drifted into the left lane and struck an oncoming car head-on at nearly 50 miles per hour. The sounds of crunching metal splintered the Idaho night. Her right foot and leg were crushed on impact. The country doctor tasked with rebuilding her body did the best he could, but the bones fused together in a painful arch. It's a defect she keeps hidden to this day by thick, dark socks. She's never worn a high heel. As she continued to grow, the injured foot did not, requiring her to buy two pairs of shoes for the rest of her life, size four for the right, size five and a half for the left. Her spine has curved with age, bending itself around a life walked on two legs of different lengths. This injury and the bent body it has created was her punishment, she told me. The crash killed the husband and wife in the front seat of the oncoming car. Their two-year-old baby in the back seat was the only survivor. My grandma's guilt about that night has crunched like gravel beneath every step her arched feet have taken since. My great-grandma Genevieve never let her daughter forget the lives she had ended or the baby she'd orphaned. To expose a 14-year-old mind to that amount of shame warps it in a different but parallel way to how the whispers in the ward must have warped Larry. Years passed, but the accident robbed Orva of any sense of self-worth. To this day, my grandma deflects most compliments given to her. When I was younger, I just assumed she was being humble, like most Mormon grandmas are. 
But when she told me this story, I realized it's not humility. She just genuinely doesn't believe the compliments could be true. My life is nothing, and I don't think anybody cares. Diddly squat, whether they, you know, seriously. I wish it was still around. It's not. So, anyway. Shame does things to the mind. And in place of self-confidence, Orva's mind created a judge, ruthless and unbending. It's her version of the Eye of Sauron that lived in Uncle Brent's head, constantly whispering her unworthiness. It's a judge that's dismissive of all contrary evidence that would dare suggest Orva was a good person who made a devastating, yet human, mistake. I imagine this is partly why, years later, she jumped at the chance to escape. She was working as a waitress at a roadside cafe, and one day, she met my grandfather, who was working as a traveling salesman. He didn't know her past. All that mattered was that she knew he'd take her away from that small town surrounded by buttes where everyone had heard that deafening crash. I believe this pain that my grandma has carried is the source of her unparalleled fidelity to her family. In her children and her children's children, the pain and patience her life has required suddenly has purpose, as though our success will have made it all worth it. This is why, when her neighbor started the rumor about Larry, she went and she knocked on his door. In spreading rumors about Larry, the man was attacking a central part of Orva's vicarious self-worth. To this day, she cites this altercation with the neighbor as the moment when it all changed for Larry. Larry turned further into himself. He became an incredibly talented pianist, making a singular friend with the janitor who unlocked the chapel door so he could practice. The rumors the neighbor had started metastasized into something everyone just knew, thanking God it wasn't their son. They'd praise Larry for his skills at the piano, but he was never really one of them, and his only real friend was his mother. We were good friends. And fittingly so. To my eye, they both seemed trapped in worlds that really didn't understand them, united by that singular belief that they were unworthy. I like to think they found the companion they needed in one another. Shame can create bonds, too. Perhaps in that shared space, they were finally able to drop the masks they used to hide their scars and finally feel equal to someone, worthy of something. When my grandma told me this story, I tried to let her know how much I love her. I wanted to make it all better. I was desperate for her to feel a feeling she cannot offer herself. Love. But I could tell the words I offered were just sounds she heard, something abstract and blurry. She didn't feel them in her body, and she dodged them in a way that broke my heart. But then she spoke more generally to me, blurring the line between her own story and that of Larry. We all have things in our lives. Right. That we wish wasn't there. But it's there. 
I sensed her wisdom as she said this, that type of truth that has been earned the hard way. She told me what she does with these burdens, the things that she wishes weren't there. And you can uh, repent, you can uh, seek forgiveness you, from, from your friends, from your family, from everyone who's around you. And there are those who can forgive and there's those who can't and won't and don't. And so you live with that too. Larry didn't leave behind a physical vault the way Brent did, which meant piecing together his story was a little more difficult. My grandma, however, had saved some of his belongings, including a journal that Larry had kept while serving as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Montreal, Canada. He was 19 when he wrote it. The missionary journal is a unique document in Mormon lore. As I said in episode one, our ancestors are part of our faith. And Mormons are very actively encouraged by their church leaders to keep journals to pass down to their progeny. This means that journals are often written with an awareness that they may be read by someone down the line. Those expectations can lead to an odd sort of self-censoring. When I was a missionary, I went so far as to keep two journals, one where I'd write from the perspective of Elder Mangum, happy, eager, thrilled to be doing the Lord's work. This was the one I thought I'd pass down to my kids. But I kept another journal where I wrote from the perspective of my actual self, scared, homesick, and lonely. So when I read Larry's journal, I did not think I was actually reading his true, uncensored thoughts, but instead, his performance of a role that serves as the main rite of passage for any Mormon boy hoping to become a Mormon man. The journal is written in his immaculate cursive. His handwriting is almost exactly the same as my grandma Orva's. When I returned from my LDS mission, I taught new missionaries Spanish at the Missionary Training Center next to Brigham Young University, so I know the mindset of a new missionary well. The first pages of the journal are filled with Larry's anxieties, his hopes and dreams for what his missionary service will be. He has a deep love for the people of Montreal, even though he hadn't really met them yet. He's homesick, and he's desperately trying to memorize his missionary discussions a sequence of lessons missionaries used to give to those investigating the LDS church. He struggles to learn French. And then, predictably, he arrives in the mission field and is overwhelmed by the exhaustingly long days, the tedious door-knocking, and the frustration of forced companionship with other 19-year-old men he would never have spent time with on his own. But there is also hope, and there is faith, that if he keeps working— he will be a blessing to the lives of those he was called to serve. Missions, despite how they're portrayed in the Book of Mormon musical, are really hard, both physically and psychologically. Your identity is slowly whittled away in a way that is similar to a military boot camp. But instead of cadet, you are called elder. You wear the same uniform as the elder next to you. You maintain the same precise haircut. And for two years, the biggest expression of your identity is which tie you choose to wear in the morning. 
If you don't love who you are, as I'm certain Larry did not, this opportunity to be rebuilt from the ground up is welcomed. Many gay missionaries perform their labors with silent hopes that if they work hard enough, God will bless them by making them straight. I certainly wanted that. I imagine Larry wanted the same. What I am struck by most in Larry's journal is the consistent desire for a friend. It reminded me of what my grandma had said about him being a bit of a loner. Most of the journal is spent complaining about companions who don't talk to him enough. On January 8th, 1981, he writes, I need a friend really bad, and I'm about to go crazy without one. But all that my companion wants to do is read, and I'm going crazy with the quiet around here. He records his heartbreak when his favorite companion was transferred to another area. I'm really sad to lose this elder. He has taught me so much. I feel like they are pulling my best friend out from under my feet. I cried half the morning, but there is absolutely nothing I can do. I would give anything to be with him. Then, about ten months into his mission, something begins to change. Slowly, a cynicism begins to show up in his entries. He's tired of companions faking sick to get out of work. He's exhausted and bored from knocking doors that never open. I remember the feeling. He begins to break small rules, buying newspapers just to maintain his sanity. But then, the rule-breaking gets a little more serious. Well, serious for a Mormon missionary. On April 23, 1981, Larry went and saw a movie. After dinner, we went to a movie. It is the very first one I've seen on my mission, and I'm sorry I did. It was really not very good, and I'm feeling pretty guilty about the entire thing. Later, in that same entry, he writes, My companion wants me to go on a ding trip to Niagara Falls, but I'm going to refuse. I don't think I could ever go that far. My mission didn't use the term ding trip, but I can guess what he means. Mormon missionaries are assigned a specific geographic area to work and live. Under no circumstances are they to leave that area. I'm assuming a ding trip is an unauthorized departure that would have been a serious infraction of the rules. Two days later, he writes, Boy, have I blown it. It was our travel day today and we really traveled. I have now taken my first official ding trip all the way to Plattsburgh, New York. Larry hadn't just left the mission. He'd left the country. I can't believe that I really did this. I must admit, however, that I did enjoy it. We only took about an hour drive down and an hour to drive back. While there, we just bummed around, and eventually we went to dinner at a pizza hut. After dinner, we drove back to Montreal. Then, this evening... We bought a newspaper, and we went to a movie, Excalibur. It was really a good show. You can't help but smile at the intensity of his guilt for things that are so normal. But to a missionary's mind, these infractions result in the Spirit of God leaving you. And when that happens, you suddenly can't speak the language as well. You feel tired and dark. No doors open when you knock. It might be a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it certainly feels real. Remember Grandma Genevieve's letter to Brent about his face being contorted 
his muscles haggard due to his unworthiness? This is the missionary equivalent of that. And so, after the high of breaking the rules, comes the crash of guilt and shame. I've been so apostate this last week, I can hardly believe it. I'm wondering if the only way I'll ever clear my conscience is if I go in and confess to the president of the mission. I guess I'll have to just keep waiting and see. I am, however, going to try from now on to be as good as I possibly can. I want to baptize, but I'm wondering if my desire is as good as it should be. Eventually, buckling under the guilt, the missionary Larry traveled with set up an appointment to confess to the mission president. And before long, Larry did the same. I told the mission president all of what happened, and he told me he already knew, and that someone had already told him. I'm beginning to wonder just how many people know what I've done. He grows increasingly paranoid. On May 1st, 1981, he writes, At our morning meeting, all of the comments seemed to be geared toward my mistake. I guess I must be paranoid, but I feel that more people probably know than I realize. A third missionary was added to the companionship, surely to try and keep the wayward missionaries on the straight and narrow. And then, the journal stops. Larry had more than a year of missionary service left, and he didn't write a single entry. But, folded into the back flap of the journal, I found a loose sheet of paper. It is a missionary weekly report form. A weekly letter that all missionaries must write to their mission president, updating their leaders on the status of their missionary work. Larry wrote it the last week of his mission. The tone couldn't be more different from that eager, nervous missionary who had started writing two years ago in the journal. Larry's voice is cold, cynical, and completely over it. Dear President, I guess I'll have to write this week. Sorry that I missed last week. Transfer call-out has come, and I have found it quite depressing. I cannot understand why, with only three transfers in one entire zone, and me with only one month left, why my companion had to be transferred. But I guess it doesn't matter. Nothing ever really seems to. Besides, how can a person expect to grow if they are happy with their companion? Elder Brown was an excellent man. I've tried not to let my attitude rub off, so I guess that it's good that he went. At least he won't develop one like mine. Of course, it is what I've always dreamed of, finishing my mission with three one-month companionships in a row. Thanks. But then again, I must always remember growth means pain, not happiness. Don't worry, though. I only have one month left, and then you'll be rid of me. Sorry to be such a hassle, but I guess this is how the cookie crumbles. Have a good week anyway, Elder Larry Nelson. P.S. I hope your other 150 missionaries are happy. And with that, Larry came home. I asked my grandma about his return. We were just visiting one night, and, and I just out and asked him, I said, Larry, why did you go on your mission? And he said, because you and Dad expected it. And I felt really, really bad about that. I would never have pushed him to go. I never would have, or not pushed, but encouraged him to go had I known that. Hindsight is twenty twenty. 
And I can't imagine the pain a mother must feel knowing that the thing she thought would best serve her son ended up being something so painful he couldn't even write it in his journal. Was a ding trip really enough to cause such a drastic change in him? The next bit of Larry's life is fuzzy. Similar to my own journey in part one of this series, leaving belief behind is a slow process, often imperceptible to outsiders. I asked my grandma when she realized Larry was no longer attending church. As is so often the case with ex-Mormons, she noticed the difference when she realized that Larry had stopped wearing his garments, the sacred underwear worn by all devout Mormons. I guess it's when I realized he'd uh, taken his garments and wasn't wearing his garments anymore. I want to hear about this. Did he tell you? Did he no, say, did no he what? didn't tell me. I, I found, it was all in a box. I found part of the journal. I found his garments all put in this box. The scriptures were in that box. And I, it was just tucked away back in the, in the furnace room downstairs. He just quit. He just quit. And why he quit? See, I don't know. Did Larry ever come out to you? No, never. And I, I never confronted him. I didn't think it was right. I felt that I should let him live his own life the way he felt that he should live it. But I never, I never felt that it was my place to question that and try to change him. I continued to search for information on Larry. I followed whatever leads I could find, reading the notes friends left in his digital Book of Remembrance. I watched the recording of his funeral. But the most fruitful information came from interviews with members of my own family. These interviews weren't easy, and I am deeply grateful to the family members who allowed me to ask them about painful, complicated memories. They all mentioned a man named John. My first memory of John was at a Christmas at Grandma Orva's house when I was nine or ten years old. Growing up, my family would drive our huge van from Ohio to Utah to spend the holidays with our extended family and go skiing. I had been told that John was Larry's roommate, and I believed it until I heard my older brothers laughing when my grandparents gifted John a beautiful leather jacket. Apparently, this jacket, and all leather jackets for that matter, were gay. It was the 90s, and metrosexuality was not yet a thing. My brothers took the jacket as confirmation of what they and the rest of my family already suspected about Larry and John. My grandma gave me John's last name, and I looked him up on Facebook. This led to a phone conversation. I finally had a source who had the capacity to understand my uncle from a non-Mormon point of view. There, there, there was this gay bar called The Sun. It was kind of epic, to be honest. It was this big dance club that was really, the, in my view, the funnest kind of bar and club in Salt Lake. I told my sister I was gay and, um, and about the sun, and she said, oh, yeah, let's go. 
so I started going there. You know, at first it was with my sister, first couple of times. And then I would just go by myself, and I met people right away. Yeah. So I met Larry at the sun. He was very sweet to me, and, you know, um, we started dating after that. John recalled my Uncle Larry as a handsome, kind man, a chain smoker, and a heavy drinker. Larry got two DUIs within their first month of dating, so I was kind of shocked that John chose to stick around with that introduction. This is the HIV era. I was absolutely terrified of getting it, right? Mm. I mean, literally. Literally, the generation prior are the, you know, the gay men that were five to ten years older than me. They were just decimated by HIV. And it was kind of my age group and Larry's age group that came of age just after that. Yeah. I was pretty motivated to be in a relationship and not be out playing the field. Together, they found happiness. The first eight years of the relationship worked really well for me, and I was, I was happy in the relationship. I thought it was really fun and sweet, and he was, you know, he was really nice to me. John provided more insight into Larry's missionary years. He told me that he started to be aware of being gay on his mission in Montreal. He told me he started to have, he might have had some feelings before, but on his mission, I think he actually had some kind of sexual encounter with another missionary. And I don't, if I remember correctly, no one ever found out about it or anything, but I think that was Mm. probably kind of a, you know, formative moment when he realized he was gay. This explained the lack of entries the cold and angry tone at the end. This explained why Larry returned, took off his garments, and didn't look back. Whatever happened on his mission, Larry had figured out who he was long before his mission's two-year clock had ended. Imagine all that happening and still, every day, having to wake up, put on a white shirt and tie, and go knock doors. No wonder Larry was bitter. I'm just curious, would you describe Larry as proud of being gay or was Absolutely. It kind of militant almost right like within our friends and within the gay world very outspoken and um unapologetic i would say and um we would do the we'd always go to the gay pride and in, in salt lake yeah. so on the weekends there would actually be you know kind of closeted um boys or men from BYU that would come mm-hmm. to the farm, right? <laughs> and and um, we, we'd meet them um, and, you know, talk to them at the sun and kind of figure out that they were a little closeted or whatever. And he'd, he'd be pretty kind of hard on them and, you know, um, kind of expect them to kind of deal with it in their closetedness, you know what I mean? And not sympathetic at all. Like, I dealt with it you got to deal with it too, kind of attitude. Gay boys from BYU escaping to Salt Lake to go to the bars is a tale as old as time. And I don't know why, but I kind of love that Larry was a jerk to them, pushing them to come out. I like to think that, had he been around, he would have said something similar to me. Maybe it would have sped up my own journey out of the closet. But I also can't help but see the irony given that Larry never came out to his family himself. For all his militancy, Larry could never let go of his need for his family's approval. And this need created in him 
an unmatched loyalty toward his parents, especially Orva. He had kind of a codependent relationship with his mother. You know, I think he kind of got the whole Mormon domestic thing from his mom. You know, the painted wood figurines and some of the sewing. And he really needed to, to spend time with her. They, they would do the Mormon handicrafts together. Um, Larry was up there every weekend mowing their lawn and always was the kid that was doing everything for his parents. Remember what I said about my grandma always having a gay best friend? Well, Larry was definitely the best of the gay best friends. And I couldn't help but hear echoes of Uncle Brent's sewing and cooking and Larry's love of his mother and his talents at crafting. I asked John if Larry ever spoke of Brent. Brent was more like, I don't want to say a role model, but the first one in the family to kind of, you know, um, sort of be out or something, you know? Like, I think Larry saw him more, I don't want to say a role model, I don't know what the right word is, but kind of paving the trail in a sense. I was happy to hear this, to know that in some way, the realities of these two men were shared or recognized between them. But despite Larry's fidelity to his parents, he never felt like they fully accepted him. I think Larry was kind of tortured by it, the fact that they never really could fully deal with it and fully accept him. And I think the reason that they never gave him his full approval is because of the gay thing. Mm. So I don't know if they ever had a conversation about him being gay, but... It was, in my mind, and I think his too, it was very clear that they knew he was gay and they didn't approve of it, really. Now, I want to be fair to my grandma on this one. Though they may not have approved, my grandma and grandpa let John and Larry live in their basement while they saved money to buy a home together. They may not have spoken about the nature of their relationship, but John was invited to everything, accepted as much as they were able. When I came out to my grandma, she looked at me and said, Craig, I know. My son was gay. I say this not to disprove John or Larry's emotional experience of acceptance, but simply to offer that people can change. Orva letting her son and his boyfriend live in her basement is profound progress when compared to great-grandma Genevieve's treatment of Brent. So I am grateful that Larry showed up for his parents, because it allowed his parents to show up for me years later. So I'm I'm curious, did Larry ever really talk about the Mormon church? Did he believe it, miss it, hate it, resent it? What did he, was it just a non-issue? How did that play in his life? I, I think that was another thing, to be honest, that Larry was kind of conflicted about. But then, from my perception, he could never kind of completely walk away from it either. Larry was very angry and bitter with the church. And if you had a conversation with him about it, you'd kind of get that. This institution that kind of persecuted him was also, there was also a good side to it and the closeness of his family. And I think he really wanted that and wanted that close relationship with his parents. Whereas as maybe someone else from a you know, less religious background would have just kind of walked away from their family. And the last five years kind of slowly deteriorated. 
and um, we kind of grew apart. We were together for a long, long time, like 13 years. They broke up after they both fell in love with another man. The same other man. We both kind of ended up falling for him, right? It kind of, I kind of fell in love with Casey and realized that I wasn't in love with Larry. He, he was so mad and angry about the breakup, he just walked away from all of it. He was angry and she told me not to talk, you know, not to ever contact him again. John hadn't heard anything about Larry until I reached out for the interview. Thirteen years together, and the first update he got was his former partner's nephew reaching out to rehash the relationship. He was very kind to take the call. His first question, what happened? I wish I had prepared better. I wish I had thought through how to say it. I wish I could tell him what happened in a way that honored what they were to one another. A way of saying that just because it ended didn't mean it hadn't meant something. I told him about Larry's addictions, his loneliness. John said that he wasn't that surprised. The fact that Larry had become addicted to crystal meth in particular was unexpected, but not the pain that motivated that addiction. Not the sense of failure and inadequacy. Those had always been there. I've thought a lot about the five years between the breakup with John and Larry's death. It's such a short amount of time in the grand scheme of things, and such a drastic change. Larry's greatest desire had always been to have a friend, and I cannot imagine the earthquake of loss he experienced when he lost his partner. Similar to my grandma, I felt like John provided Larry with the love Larry could not provide for himself. When you do not love yourself, having someone in your life whose job it is to love you creates an addiction all its own. What do you do when that ends? There's no withdrawal quite like heartbreak. My grandma helped fill in the details of Larry's life after the relationship, what she knew anyway. Following John, Larry began dating a man who was emotionally and physically abusive. She believes it was this man who first introduced Larry to drugs. When Larry showed up at my grandma's house with a black eye, she told him to change the locks on his apartment and come and stay with her until it blew over. He did, but something had already changed in Larry. His addictions grew worse. He lost his job as a result. She always knew when he was high, but she didn't know what to do. She cried as she told me what it was like, hearing her son talk out loud to the voices inside his head. Her voice had a mix of heartbreak, confusion, and helplessness that I imagine is commonly held among those who love people battling addiction. The drugs caused him to have voices in his head. Caused him... I mean, he would sit here on the couch and he would talk to them. Whoever it was, he was these voices that the drugs had caused. I mean, I guess he'd taken so many drugs uh, that it, or maybe he took them to, I don't know. Yeah. But he, uh, 
he would he would talk to them. But like, what are you thinking when you hear your son? Well, I just knew that he was really bad into the drugs. Or were we going to be able to help him? Could we get him through? Um, was he on the drugs when he was talking to mm-hmm, these people? I feel like I know Larry's pain intimately, and I can't help but see reflections of myself in his story. We both allowed our visions of ourselves to be shaped by a religion that had very little use for us in the end. We've both looked at life feeling robbed of the answers our family enjoys about what comes next. We've both oscillated between envy and disdain for our family's ability to stay inside a world we were raised to want but found we could never really fit. And that tension forms the crux of the feeling that made Larry want to stay awake for days, floating above his body where he didn't hurt. An escape hatch from a mind and soul programmed to hate itself is one hell of a temptation. I don't judge Larry for creating a new religion to replace the one he lost, a new god conjured from the click of a butane lighter and a puff of heavenly white smoke. To be able to obliterate thought and feeling on cue, to erase shame and guilt instantaneously without the work, that is divine. Larry went to rehab but struggled to maintain sobriety. Then, on New Year's Eve, he woke my grandma up at one or two in the morning. I need to go talk to my sponsor. And he says, just take care of my cats, okay? There was my clue. Duh. Mm. And I let him go. The next morning, my grandma hosted her annual New Year's Day brunch for the entire family. Larry never showed up. All that day, I just felt there was something the matter. He wasn't here. There was something, something wrong. I didn't think he'd probably taking his life, but I knew there was something drastically wrong. My grandma sent my uncle and cousin to check on him at his apartment. And it was probably about two o'clock in the afternoon. And I, I knew, I don't know why, I knew, I knew Larry was dead. So it was a suicide? It was a suicide, yes. Did he leave it? No. I don't know if he really meant that I think it was an OD. I really think it was an overdose of of drugs. I was not at Larry's funeral. When he died, I was living in Bolivia, finishing out the last months of my Mormon mission. Missionaries communicate with their families via email once a week, and so I learned of his passing in an email from my parents. When they neglected details of how he died, I, like my grandma, immediately knew. Suicide among gay Mormons is so common, it borders on a trope. My stomach fell and I went into a bathroom where I began to sob. I got on my knees and I began to pray, asking God to comfort my family, my grandma, who had lost not only her son, but her best friend. I prayed for Larry, and I think, in a way, I prayed for myself. I was so devout at the time that I took his death as a warning, 
of what would inevitably happen to me if I ever dared act on the feelings I had carried my entire life. I simultaneously feel so much revulsion and compassion for that version of myself, kneeled on a bathroom floor, hot tears streaming, mumbling prayers. It shouldn't have been that way. I feel ashamed that the news of Larry's death passed through a Mormon filter so thick that I self-centeredly misconstrued his passing as a divine warning, a message that further fused me to my faith. I'll say it again. It should not have been that way. Years later, in a writing workshop, I imagined myself there at the funeral, not as the missionary I was, but as the person I now am. I allowed myself to feel the pain I couldn't feel when I learned the news, the heartbreak, the outrage. The essay I wrote may have told a lie, but it was a therapeutic one for me. One that helped me figure out what I felt, but more importantly, one that connected me to Larry. In the end, I think that might be what all this storytelling is about. Connection. Forging through words and memory, a relationship I wish I had had in life. It's harder than losing a spouse. You should never, ever in this lifetime have to bury a child. Never. It's wrong. Totally and completely wrong. He had a good heart. He was a good kid. He was a good man. What do I do with these stories? What is the why behind all this? Sometimes I like to sum up my relationship to Mormonism by saying, Joseph Smith walked into the woods and emerged from those woods telling a story, the power of which has diverted my family tree ever since. I visualize it as ripples undulating across the surface of water, carrying us all along with it. And the only way to undo the power of a story is by telling a different, more powerful story. When I was at BYU and in the thick of losing my faith, I stumbled on the song Galileo by the Indigo Girls. A young gay man discovering the Indigo Girls is hardly a unique experience. And fulfilling all cliches, I listened to the song on repeat for the better part of a year. The chorus has a line that asks, How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I feel like this is what is happening in my family. The same story repeating itself over and over, trying to get it right. Three boys for three successive generations, each responding differently to the same basic premise. Three mothers grappling with how to best love their special sons. Traumas inherited, traumas passed on. I choose to call these repeating storylines sacred. I haven't used that word much since leaving Mormonism. Growing up, I was taught not to discuss certain aspects of my faith publicly by being told the maxim that some things were not secret, but sacred. Well, given how much I love to do the opposite of what I was taught, I have chosen to treat this family history as sacred, not secret. 
because not talking about it perpetuates the pain. And pain begs to be numbed. We've already lost too much to that numbing. I don't want to numb anymore. Reclaiming their stories and researching their lives has been my way of talking about it. And in doing so, these men have become real people to me, not just storylines used to keep me behaving or believing in a certain way. Uncle Brent, his mother's flawed prince, that angry, judgy, confusing man, and Uncle Larry, lonely yet kind, kicking against his addictions, teaches me much more than just someone who left the church but died alone. Their lives could have been my own, and in their wake, I feel gratitude, peace. Though they aren't here physically, their lives have still shaped me, serving as the guideposts I was taught my pioneer ancestors' stories would be. This is my family history, uncontorted from that Mormon box it was born into. And though it looks nothing like the sort of pioneer stories I was taught to hold up and honor as a child, these men will not be forgotten. Not by me. And I believe that story is powerful enough to replace the one I lost. Head was on the block. The crime was looking up the truth. And as the bombshells of my daily fears explode, I try to trace them to my youth. And then you had to bring up reincarnation over a couple of beers the other night. And now I'm serving time for mistakes Made by another in another lifetime How long till my soul gets it right Can any human being ever reach that kind of light I call on the resting soul of Galileo Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. Pioneer Stock was written and told by Craig Mangum. Special thanks this week to Zach Stafford and to Craig Pulsifer, who played the role of Larry. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme music is by Luis Guerra. We used incidental music from Blue Dot Sessions. If you or someone you care about is having suicidal thoughts, help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. We can all help prevent suicide. The Lifeline provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress and offers prevention and crisis resources for you or your loved ones, as well as best practices for professionals in the United States. Call them at 1-800-273-TALK. 
1-800-273-8255. Family Ghosts is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get access to a special Family Ghosts feed, where all the episodes are available ad-free and where we release exclusive bonus content that's not available anywhere else. We couldn't make Family Ghosts without the support of the Kindred Spirits. So if you have the means, please consider joining them today at patreon.com slash familyghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Thank you for listening. Please consider supporting the show for free by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take 30 seconds of your life, and it will make a huge difference in the life of Family Ghosts. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new story, right here on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted.